Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hello, I'm Helen. And I'm Stephen. And on this week's New Statesman podcast, we talk about resignations. And Patrick Maguire joins us in the New Statesman podcast broom cupboard. So Stephen, where were you when you heard about Bed Bradshaw and Maria Caulfield's resignations? When I heard about Ben Bradley. Oh, God, yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, no. I mean, to be honest, if Ben Bradshaw resigned, I think that actually would be That'd a be kind a story. of... So I was... At Sorry. my desk in Westminster, yep. uh, which obviously I share with uh, with Patrick and Labourist Sienna Rogers, we all looked at each other and no, actually we looked at each other and went back to talking about the forthcoming game between France and Croatia. So just in case our listeners haven't been hooked by the uh, later stages of the Tory psychodrama, obviously we had David Davis's resignation on late on Sunday night, and we had Boris Johnson's on Monday. Uh, Theresa May made a statement. Then another guy whose name I've already forgotten. I want to say Chris. Chris, oh, I, you can do I this. actually You've got struggled this. with this yesterday. Chris Green. Um, Chris Green, who was a PPS at Transport. Chris Green is the ultimate nightmare MP because his surname is a colour and uh, the Bolton constituencies are all named after compass points, but it's a classic bad constituency name and the compass points do not really make sense. Right, there's like a northwest and then there's just an east, isn't there? There's like, there was one, yeah. they don't, they think, yeah. yeah. It, uh, and I want to say he's uh, the MP for northwest, but he, as a result, I often refer to him as Chris North, the MP for West Green. Right. And it's just a bit of Nonetheless, you won't have to refer to him at all, really, because he's returned to the back bench, prompting another tweet from another Tory MP, maybe my favourite tweet of the week, which said, what was it? Quote, your, your Y-O-U-R, a PPS, no one gives a bleep. I mean, I do, obviously. <laughs> right? There was some, that was some prime Tory beef that was aired. I don't know. I'm slightly concerned that one of the many jobs under threat as a result of Brexit uh, is criminal that of criminologist because it's not like um, you really need kind of a three-part blog from me explaining the inc- intricacies of what that row means, right? You know, they they've effectively. I really thought we were the one industry uh, that Brexit could not kill was people explaining the intricacies of Tory beef. In fact, I would have thought Brexit would be a boom was, yeah, for exactly. that industry, <laughs> but it turns out they've just decided to, you know, it's a bit like that make tweet it a that clean guy did sweep. Like- and- 
I've just worked on this story for 20 months and he just tweeted it out. That was our version of that. So, yeah, so obviously one of the currents that that uh, tweet exchange exposed was the fact that the kind of non-wing nut, oh, I think that I probably can say that, the non-Brexit ultra faction of the Tory party are a bit annoyed that they just keep marching loyally through the lobbies, getting on with it, rowing in behind Theresa May, and then the headbanger constituency have decided, as they see it, kind of to hold the party to ransom. And yeah, then, although the thing about um, people like, Ben Bradley and Maria Caulfield is they're not right. Really so let's move ha- on to them. They're Tory yeah. vice chairs, right? Yeah. And and they both resigned on Wednesday, so yeah. they're slightly and they're in a slightly different category. Yeah, they're not really uh, sort of you know kind of primordial Brexiteers. They both believe, and this is like a really fascinating collective action problem, right? Because if you are the average Leave voter, so you're sixty something, retired, and living in a small town without much immigration. What is the tangible sign to you that you have received a good or a bad Brexit? Answer, it's, is the NHS in a better or worse state, which is actually why the most important policy lever for them to have, have pulled is to spend more on the NHS, even though, of course, that has nothing to do with a Brexit dividend of any kind. However, the other clue will be how various uh, elites on your side respond to the deal. Now, the weird thing, of course, that means is that it was it's notionally in the Conservative Party's interest for MPs in marginal seats not to resign going, I can't defend this, I can't defend this, my constituents will eat them. But of course, because at least because at least one of them will always do that, right? You know, you, you might be able to get the so the mail, very fascinatingly, is covering this through the lens of its criminology. The Sun is covering it as a blue on blue fight, but the Telegraph is covering it as she's a traitor, she's a traitor. And because there will never be a situation where if you're the Tory party, you can get everyone on the right to act in a enlightened and self-interested way, it's actually in everyone's individual interests to do what Ben Bradley has done, which is try and inoculate yourself locally. But of course, that won't work either because... The problem is it will always be in someone's interest to say that the Brexit deal is back. Mm, and as we know, personal votes are a lot. And his majority is, I think, 1,076, and his constituency voted 17.9% in favour of Brexit. I mean, that is a Levy constituency right right there. But what's Ben Bradshaw up to, the Labour MP for Exeter? Well, Ben Bradshaw actually is a kind of a good segue into the other sort of part of, of this, right? So... So crucially, right, the, the reason why uh, conservative uh, Brexiteers are saying we'll keep resigning till she changes her mind is they know that if she doesn't change her mind, uh, they have no other mechanism to change policy. They can't replace her as leader. And if they did, you know, one Tory MP said to me sort of last week, they were just like, well, you know, the, the thing that people do forget is only the fact that people still feel that Theresa May is secretly on their side and that she moves towards them a soft Brexit position whenever she can means that people, pro-Europeans, haven't just said, well, I'm just going to torch the place. The second you end up with Boris Johnson, Jacob Rees-Mogg, the incentives to kind of play nicely if you're a Tory pro-European have gone out the window. And the, uh, the Brexit ultras know that as well, right? They know that they can't, they don't have the numbers to change the leadership. If they do change the leadership, it makes their problem in Parliament worse, not better. And they can't change her mind. And they have surrendered the one arena where you can still influence policy, which is being in the cabinet. Um, So you and I have written a cover story this week. One of the things that I enjoyed about that was you had this thing I did uh, about the European Research Group, this much feared kind of Tory MPs grouping, about 80 Tory (laughs) MPs. And you said, you know, but the numbers of that are a bit uh, misleading because it's a bit like one of those societies that you join in Freshers Week at university when you go around the fair and you just sign up to everything, which I thought was a really useful point because I think that, 
we might get the, the feeling over the next couple of weeks that the Brexiteers' bark is actually kind of, or the hard Brexiteers' bark is a lot worse than their bite in terms of what they're able to accomplish. But the other thing that we talked about in our cover story is the looming meaningful vote, which I just, I mean, looks like a proper runaway mind train to me. Like, I just don't know how you get that through. You, you've written in your free morning email about the possibility of you know, like having a second vote, like the debt ceiling vote that the US had, right, where they just had to keep... Or was it, there was the financial so, bailout. Yeah, it, was, yeah, it was the Troubled Asset uh, Relief Programme, TARP, yeah. where actually the, the dynamics are quite similar, right? You have a, a left-wing party who... There are various things about this Brexit deal that it is not going to like, and also it is in its political interests... Uh, to vote against it. I just cannot imagine a situation in which on the first time the deal comes to Parliament, it is just ever than anyone in the Labour Party will think, hey, do you know what would be a great idea politically? Um, I'm going to vote with the Tories. Yeah. Do you know what my constituents are going to love? Do you know what my activists are going to love? Yeah, it's just like your activists aren't going to like it. Remain or leave, I can't see how you can sell it to your own voters. But, of course, what happened with TARP is enough Republicans turned out to be ideologically committed to this idea of no bailouts, that um, it failed the first time. The market, of course, plunged. There were all sorts of, you know, net, yeah, and there were lots of long, you know, that, that, that created long run problems in terms of, of economic growth and uh, people's jobs in, in, in the United States and indeed across the, the rest, rest of the world. Um, but then what happened was, is you had a, uh, a bill which moved slightly towards uh, what Democrats wanted, uh, which passed uh, with the vote with the votes of Democrats, and the long-lasting casualties uh, of that were uh, the were the economy, of course, and crucially, the Republican parties uh, went. The Republican Party went down to landslide defeat in two thousand and eight. And in terms of the internal balance of that political party, it is hard to sustain the argument that they have recovered. Right, they are in power; they control all three branches of government. Admittedly, thanks to a very weird electoral system, but still, you know. All of that aside, we have a pretty weird electoral system here too, and you can see how they might be able to leverage out that kind of control. But the, the damage that the Republican Party sustained is still ongoing. I mean, it really was. Like, I think Obama had a supermajority in the Senate in his first uh, yeah. after his first set of elections, right? Which is, you know, I mean, that was one of the big strikes against Obama is people say, well, he should have been able to be much more bold in his first year when he had such a big majority but anyway and i think it is quite likely you know maybe that maybe for various electoral reasons the kind of uh the the sort of thumping labor uh late labor result afterwards doesn't happen but it feels to me likely that there will be at least seven conservative mps who decide to vote against it i do not believe there will be a a, a big enough countervailing wave of of Labour defections because if Labour if Tory leavers don't like it, Labour leavers aren't going to like it either. And I think that it will not be anywhere near soft enough. Yeah, you know, I mean there there are pro Europeans in the Labour Party who know full well that if they voted for it, it would be the end of their career. But if if the deal was single market customs union, they would go well. That is, a, I am I am willing for this to be the last line of my uh, of my political life. But they're not going to do that for you know maximum facilitated yeah, some deal for goods and yeah I mean that that's just not that is not a, a price that they're willing to pay. So I think it feels to me fairly likely that the first time the deal is voted down, there will of course then be a kind of fairly immediate uh, economic you know kind of markets will panic. We will at that point start to be yeah because there's nothing kind of so the sun has kind of written up oh the government is telling is trying to getting to stockpile canned food to show Brussels it means the threat of no deal. And you're just like, I mean, is that really your take home? Then we're, oh good, we're, we're going to show them because we're going to stockpile canned food. Uh, 
I don't really like canned food. I ate a lot of canned food in my childhood, and one of the great things about being an adult is I eat a lot less canned food now. Yeah, I mean... Do you remember uh, those peaches and syrup? No, I mean, I, I've, I've never... Canned food is not really part of my... Um, All right, I'll get you with your fancy-fancy London metropolitan where you were probably lived close to shops when you were growing up. Yeah, it's true. I did, did have... It's not like that. Not like have, in the Midlands, let me tell you. did have corner shop privilege, right? I actually realised, I think this is currently the furthest I've ever lived from a corner shop. In that I can't see the shop from my flat window. And I feel, although I did a couple of days ago go into it in what was, you know, stealthily my pajamas, right? Right. I felt a lot more guilty about it than I would have done, you know, like when it was quite literally at the foot of the block, right? That's okay. I mean, that's basically your living room at that point. Right. Uh, that is my story. You te- yeah, you tell yourself that if it um, makes you feel better. Um, just finally, before we finish, do you think that Theresa May, as there's a kind of case for this week having been a good one for Theresa May? I think it's actually, yes. I think it's a lot like um, the hilariously, obviously ill-conceived attempt to get rid of Jeremy Corbyn in 2016, uh, where it has made uh, her position more perilous in that she is reliant on a smaller group of people within her party you know ideolog- from an ideological perspective the, the breadth of her her, her cabinet is, is is narrower but of course the benefits of that are you're more coherent you can get your way in cabinet you have more political flexibility etc cetera, etc cetera. and because okay obviously the slight difference is is what uh, protect jeremy corbyn is that he still had the support of 50 percent of the membership plus one what protects Theresa may is she still has the support of 50 percent of labor mps plus one um, labor mps Conservative MPs. Sorry. That makes me feel like a lot better about my Ben Bradshaw Bradley. <laughs> yeah, that, I really shouldn't have picked you up. Uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> um, I think in some ways, kind of, it, it, the, this is kind of the, the week in which the uh, the Brexit options became more sharply defined. Possibilities of a, a soft Brexit have gone up. The possibility of a kind of catastrophic unplanned Brexit have gone up. But the the chances of a kind of planned Canada, which has always been very very small anyway have kind of gone out of the yeah we just monkeyed around for so long they haven't got time to kind of come up with it um well you know as i say every time we'll return to this subject again in the future i'm sandra and i'm just the professional your small business was looking for but you didn't hire me because you didn't use linkedin jobs linkedin has professionals you can't find anywhere else including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me in a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. And now it's time for a section that we like to call you ask us. I'm joined this week by our political correspondent, Patrick Maguire. Hello. Thank you. And so our question is from Ole Larson. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. Is Jeremy Corbyn actually keeping May in office at this point? If Labour had a more moderate leader, there might be more appetite for toppling her. Now, I think it's actually an interesting question because I think, oddly enough, and obviously, you know, you've been talking to all of these uh, people as well over not just the last week, but of course, you know, for what feels like forever. Feels, yeah, what feels like an eternity. My feeling is it, it actually, weirdly, the area of Brexit where the identity of the Labour leader makes no dif- le- the least difference. It, it is just not a factor in people's calculations. Yeah, well, the most important facts at this point are internal to the Tory party and the immovable red lines that Brussels set, right? Labour can't change either of those facts, regardless, you know, regardless if your leader is... 
Yvette Burnham or, or Jeremy Corbyn, right? Yeah, particularly because, yeah, what, what keeps Conservative Remainers bound to her is, uh, I would say, the fear, but I think actually the stone-cold certainty that whatever they got next would be worse uh, because of where the membership is. Uh, what keeps kind of sensible Brexiteers uh, to her is the knowledge that they don't think that there is a real-world alternative which uh, reconciles their various red lines or is politically survivable um, by the 2022 election. Uh, so, yeah, I, th- I think he makes very little difference to this. However, I feel that there are several other areas where uh, Jeremy Corbyn being Labour leader is significant to the Brexit process. Shall we talk through those? I feel like they are in no particular order. Well, actually, so although I feel like whenever I talk to a conser- uh, kind of centre-right uh, Conservative MP, they'll say, oh, it would be so much easier to, you know, if Andy Cooper were leader of the Labour Party, it would be so much easier for me to to break the whip. If this makes any sense, I have no doubt they're sincere, but I don't think that that is actually true because MPs just come up with so many excuses not to rebel because MPs don't, don't like... Don't rebel. Yeah. Pathologically can't. Yeah, like they don't like doing it. I'm aware that's become my, like, weird my weird uh, sort of, you know, kind of obsession. Oh, maybe, oh, you can be the latest to play this guessing game. How many times out of 10 do you think Jeremy Corbyn rebelled in his most rebellious time parliament as an MP? I have to say, a uh, bit of a busman's holiday. I did listen to the podcast in which you revealed the answer. While you were on this. holiday. Oh, God. Uh, so uh, it's two, isn't it? Yeah, it's two times out of 10. And this is the problem. I also realised that the way I, I need to find a way of asking it, which doesn't prime people for the fact that it is, 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 really, it, low. is really low. Um, yeah, so I just think, um, yeah, maybe at the margins, right? So maybe instead of having six Tory rebels, you get eight. Seeing as you need 2025 to overcome the Labour rebels going the other way. Actually, the thing I think probably is more of a difference is, um, you know, if, if say, if you know, let's let's go through the the other the other four people who could, in theory. I mean, I always feel a bit weird counting Owen Smith as a theoretical Labour leader because there were no circumstances in 2016 in which, yeah, like in which that leadership election could have been won by, and you know, at the point that that leadership election start, that leadership election was lost in November 2015 through the behaviour and, and decisions. Of, of, of Corbyn skeptics at the very beginning of, of Corbyn's leadership. So it feels a bit weird to count him as a hypothetical, but let's do it anyway. So what do you think if... So let's start in the order they finished. So Andy Burnham, what would Andy Burnham's Brexit position be? I imagine it would be very similar to Corbyn's. Like, you've got to consider he was, what, MP for Lee, very Brexity. Uh, Lee is part of the Wigan Council area. I think I was 65, 35 leave. You struggle to see how his Brexit policy is any different to Corbyn's. Same with same with Cooper. If anything, you imagine Cooper and Burnham might be a little bit more, a little bit more Brexity. If anything, yeah. I mean, this is the thing is we shouldn't forget that Andy Burnham kicked off his his had his whole spiel like you know, there's a guy in my constituency who has no mates because he's the only one who who uh, doesn't speak Polish. Now, I do think one of the many sort of weird bits of wishful thinking about the 2016 referendum result is that people go, oh, you know, if there had been another Labour leader, it would have been one. None of the, all of them said, with the exception of Mary Cray, who obviously didn't make it to the ballot, uh, and this wasn't the only uh, reason, uh, but one of the things that MPs, she said, of course, I will share a platform with David Cameron. This is a, this is too important. But 
they had all already gone, I'm not going to share a platform with David Cameron. Um, they had all said deeply unhelpful things about free movement, right? Which all, none of which can be re- could be reconciled with staying in. Do I think there was an element of kind of deliberately going, I have to be pro-European in order to stay the leadership and I'm going to be as, as difficult a pro-European as possible? Yes, but from a practical endpoint perspective, I don't really get what the electoral difference, if you're a voter who doesn't really follow politics, what is the difference between Jeremy Corbyn being an unenthusiastic pro-European out of uh, choice and Yvette Cooper being like, but of course we need to do something about free movement of labour out of expediency? I read a very interesting, uh, there was a Guardian interview with Andy Burnham before, well, during his run for the Manchester Mayoralty, in which uh, the author, whose name escapes me, suggested an interesting counterfactual in which Andy Burnham, uh, is obviously married to um, a Dutchwoman, uh, makes an incredibly personal case for the EU and free movement. Uh, and uh, we say in the EU and everything's fine. Do you not subscribe to that? I So I think with all of the others, I think uh, I find it impossible to sustain the counterfactual. Although he conducted both of his leadership elections very ba- badly, his kind of nat- his his natural attributes as a good politician, you know, his warmth, his charisma, his kind of like, you know, his like sort of punky in a non-threatening way. Kind of always whenever someone goes, but what about this counterfactual with Annie Burnham? I'm I'm quite biased to giving it more house room. The thing is I simply don't believe that the structure of the referendum campaign wouldn't have played out in a similar way. He didn't want to be involved in um, in Stronger In. I, I'm sure he would have done... I can imagine him doing that interview and him coming out very... I think probably the difference is, is I don't think the outcome would have been different in terms of the result. But I can imagine Andy Burnham having quite a good referendum campaign, yeah, doing that interview with, you know, Times, Observer, you know, kind of one of those kind of like those awful, like, he's wheeled the wife out interviews. And him being one of the winners of the referendum campaign in the way that Ruth Davison was a winner and, you know, Amber Rudd was a winner of the referendum campaign. Um, The other interesting dynamic which suddenly occurs to me is that if you had a more uh, enthusiastic uh, pro-European as Labour leader, what does that do to Steve Khan's public profile? Because he undoubtedly had a good referendum campaign because in some of the big set-piece events, like the Hustings event, he did it because he was, you know the most senior Labour pro-European who was willing to do it. And then afterwards you become Mr. Soft Brexit, Mr. London is open, Mr. Yeah, which, you know, we need to protect the economy, jobs, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, which given uh, the impact of, of the cuts on parts uh, on, on various bits of London and given his own sort of lack of a tangible thing he can point to and say, I have done this as mayor, might mean that we would be talking about him as a more vulnerable incumbent going into 2020. Uh, but... But I simply don't, it's not like Andy Burnham would have every week. This is the thing, right, is I think whenever I read about a game-changing moment in a campaign, well, campaigns aren't about game-changing moments. They're about recurrent themes like, you know, in the last election, yeah, like Labour, were, here, is a, uh, here is a policy offer for everyone paid for by the 1%, right, which is essentially was their, their through line throughout all of their policies. The through line of everything the Tories did in 2015 was, you know, long-term economic plan. And, like, the th- I don't see how... I'm married to a uh, to a Dutch woman has a through line. Does it not speak? Would it not speak to? Is it not the emotional case for the European Union that Cameron didn't make? I think that was the point the the, the Guardian journalist in that interview yeah, was thrusting I mean, at. You, uh, you know, uh, it's you're affiliated with a human face. It's, yeah, I mean, I, I'm just kind of in general a bit 
dubious about the idea than the emotional, particularly after the a non-technocratic case for the European Union should have been being made from 2000 onwards. I think obviously the structural problem in 2016 as sort of embodied by Cameron, was turning around after 16 years of saying to his voters, maybe we could leave, and then turning around at the last minute and going, oh, God, that was just a joke. Please don't do it. And I, I don't think Annie Burnham could have got out of the death spiral, though I'm less convinced of that than I was at the start of this conversation. Yvette Cooper, I just think it's open and shut, Then Yvette Cooper would have created exactly the same problem for a different reason to the one Jeremy Corbyn did. In the, It just, yeah, I mean... Kind of, there are so many awful things about the referendum campaign etched on my mind. But do you remember when they cleared, they cleared a day for Labour to have like a, a day about the referendum, and basically Yvette Cooper like runs on, grabs the mic and goes, "Hey everyone, has everyone noticed that immigrants come from the EU?" And he's just like, "Why would you do this with seven days to go?" Um, and I, I know that she thinks and thought that that was helpful, but it's not right that. It is simply not a, a sustainable or indeed truthful way to argue for Britain's membership of the European Union to pretend that we are somehow going to be able to unpick uh, the free movement of people, ignoring the fact that I don't really understand why the Labour Party has decided it thinks capital should have fewer move, more movement rights than Labour. And so I just don't buy that, then it would be different. Well, I think Liz Kendall is, is, is the other interesting counterfactual because... Although uh, all of her nominations were by right, they weren't borrowed. If she had one, she would have had a a much smaller scale version of the Corbyn problem, which is that it is hard to work out how she would have built a shadow cabinet in which the core positions were not filled by uh, political opponents. And she'd already had to resile from some of her early stuff about hating that controls on immigration mug in order to get the nominations. Um, so I, I feel like she would have ended up having to strike a more kind of like, on the one hand this, on the other hand that, maybe immigration is actually bad. Uh, and so in another way, you kind of end up in the Ed Miliband position of like anguish triangulation towards an immigration position that she didn't really believe in. And I, again, don't think that, that would have been different for the result. And in terms of the aftermath, I think actually the interesting thing is right. Is so why did the SNP end up with their um, their very maximal? We don't like this result. Uh, we need to have a second referendum. Brexit is bad. Position. The answer is because Nicola Sturgeon woke up or didn't. But but that morning she felt she's spoken about this publicly. Uh, then uh, a sense of who she was has be had been taken away from her, and she believed that pro-Europeans would would agree with her. I mean, that's certainly how I felt the, again, I didn't go to sleep, but yeah, and that's certainly how I felt the morning after. And I, th- I suddenly occurs to me that the interesting question is whether or not with Liz Kendall or Rebecca Cooper or Andy Burnham, one of them says something that, you know, kind of it's sort of the reverse of, yeah, like the Trigger Article 50 Now clip. When you actually watch it, what happens is, is he's, kind of come on in is kind of like briefed like and I have my lines and I'm going to take about this result and the presenter goes well should article 50 be triggered and he goes yep that should happen now and he doesn't really think about what he said but that of course is his default and actually held position my question the interesting thing that has only just occurred to me now is would we have a situation where 
It's the morning after. You've got a knackered uh, pro-European politician who's felt that horror that Sturgeon and Tim Farron had both felt, who goes, of course, we need to stay in the single market. Or we should we should stop it. Yeah. Do, do you have a situation where, where Labour policy... Because in an odd way, one of the things about the referendum result is you have a lot of politicians who are triangulating around things that they said at a time when they were tired. Um, yeah, they were shattered both physically and emotionally. And there's a, quite a lot of kind of going, okay, well, we can't, you know, you obviously kind of can't come out and go, you know, if you're Nicholas Surgeon, you can't sort of turn around and go, so it turns out then then, then most Remain voters weren't as upset about this result as I was, right? You know, it, it did not recast uh, Scottish politics in the way that... Uh, she intuitively felt it would. Although I do think um, her insight into what people, what she felt she'd lost out in the morning of that referendum is a massive asset to her as a politician and is one of the reasons why um, why the, the SNP is, I think, doing a very effective job of talking to um, to wavering no voters in a way that I think it wasn't uh, before. But um, does that mean Labour now has a more pro-European policy because of that initial kind of like, oh, I don't like this? Um, and again, I kind of think not because, um, although kind of a lot of Liz Kendall's, uh, strongest supporters were people who the day after were like, no, we have to stop this. She wasn't, you know, she, I can't quite remember what it was she tweeted about the result, but it wasn't like, this is awful. This, yeah, it was, this is awful, but it wasn't like, no, we have to stop this. Uh, she wasn't one of the kind of like immediate stoppers. Neither of course was, uh, Yvette Cooper who, who talked about how it was a, problem of small towns and immigration. But the, the one person who was, was Owen Smith. Yeah. Who, in that Moore interview, when he uh, first ran for leadership, did the handbrake turn towards, let's have a second referendum, and let's let's stop it, essentially. That was the delayed onset reaction that a pro-European Labour leader would have had on the morning after the referendum, right? Yeah. It was to say, well, this is this is mental. We need to we need to stop it. Yeah. The, the interesting question is, one, would you have got the 2017 election? Two, what would the result of the 2017 election have been if Labour had had a um, unambiguously anti-position? Much worse yeah, for I mean, Labour. Like, yeah. you, you, you wouldn't have held on. Uh, you don't have Paul Farrelly holding on by 20 votes in Newcastle under Lyme. You don't have Gloria De Piero holding on Ashfield. You just have dozens of Mansfields, don't you? You have incongruous seats falling to the Tories because of because of the purple, the purple firewall. Yeah, and this is the thing. You also the thing that well, yeah, the, the the kind of the thing that happened in the 2017 election is everyone who managed to one reason or other go into the election having put Brexit to one side. So whether it's Ruth Davison saying, "Of course, I'll fight for our our right in the single market, but we need to not have another independence referendum," or if it's Jeremy Corbyn going, "Of course, free movement will end, and we accept the referendum result," but what about my 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 policy offer off, uh, offer? They did very well um, because they successfully fought and won the argument about what their election was about. If it had been about Brexit, then does stuff like the dementia tax get kind of any airtime? Does the election just become well? Here's a manifesto, but no one cares about it. Yeah. Well, that that was that, that was why Labour did so well because it was notionally a Brexit election, pitched as a Brexit election, but was never forced a Brexit election. Yeah, and so people because they were, they refused to engage with the terms of the debate as Theresa May imagined them. Yeah. Uh, and so people just felt yanked around by Theresa May. So, yeah, this thing. So with a smaller parliamentary Labour Party, 
okay, I mean, admittedly, Labour doesn't have the numbers to stop Brexit now. So, but, but so basically, that doesn't really change anything. Um, but the, but this is where it becomes interesting in terms of internal Tory dynamics because the big the mantra for both sides of the of the Tory debate at the moment, i.e., uh, the payroll who want wavering MPs to support May's deal and rebels who want uh, to rebel and get her to rip up the checkers, is the mantra on both sides is if you do X we will get Corbyn. That is the line for the rebels who say, you know, like Ben Bradley resigning yesterday saying, seats like mine will fall to Labour if we push ahead with this. And uh, the government payroll after the meeting of the 1922 committee uh, were saying, look, we have to unite around the Prime Minister or we get a 1997-style landslide, um, which is where, you know, the amb- amb- Corbyn's ambiguity on Brexit delivers the result we get in uh, 2017. Uh, and then creates the situation where actually Corbyn is bringing down Labour's neck, uh, down the Tories' neck, and becomes actually in that respect a really important figure in the internal Tory debate on Brexit. Yeah, because yeah, the fact that, and although there are lots of good reasons to, yeah, the the, the argument that the next election uh, will be a very different one to twenty seventeen is it's not stupid, right? I don't know if it's true, but it's not immediate. It's not obviously false. Uh, however, because no one can confidently say Labour will not get the extra ten seats they need to form some type of government, yeah. So that is actually the big impact of Corbyn on Tory and Hill is the idea of him as a presence at the gates, and that's yeah, and that simply wouldn't have happened with any other leader uh, for the essential reason that yeah, I, I Owen Smith only. You know, only exists as one of our hypotheticals because Corbyn is already leader. And again, I, I mean, you may disagree, uh, but I simply cannot conceive of any hypothetical where, at the point that Owen Smith becomes a leadership candidate, any leadership candidate could have beaten Jeremy Corbyn. Well, say say part of that for a second and say he did. Right, the whole point of Smith's leadership then would have been to indulge the fiction that they got rid of Corbyn because he was. Uh, equivocal on the EU um, and then as we said before you see a Labour that is much more anti-Brexit or much much softer or you know can't have that uh, constructive ambiguity um, with the with 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 with, with worse results electorally yeah and I think with either of the other three yeah I mean there are many reasons why I think the whole the like you know if Yvette Burnham had led uh, Labour into the 2017 election, they would have got a better result. But the most stupid is the 2017 election only arises out of Corbyn's perceived weakness. Um, if, uh, if, you know, if you did have another Labour leader who had had a better position in the polls in 2017, there is no 2017 election. It, it only exists to get Theresa May this guaranteed bumper majority. Uh, so the hypothetical there doesn't work. The question I have is, do you think, let's say that, um, you know, Yvette Burnham is Labour leader in 2017 and um, the polls show, let's say, a small Labour lead of five points, uh, but Yvette Burnham is trailing the Tories on economic competence, which I suspect is probably where we would we would be if I, uh, any of the, uh, yeah, we'd effectively have kind of mid-period Miliband style polling. Um do you think the uh, you can't let Labour in dynamic would work both ways or do you think it would 
it would uh, be less because there would be more of it if you're Nicky Morgan. You're just like, I can live with Yvette Cooper being prime minister. I, yeah, well, I think you would ha- the mutineers of old, i.e. the pro-mutineers, as you say, have, you know, going through the division lobbies with someone like, you know, Burnham, Cooper, you know, isn't sacrilegious, is it? You know, they are, uh, in the minds of, of most of Westminster, uh, temperate, moderate, sort of very conventional, palatable to Middle England politicians, as you, as you, as you say, like the, the whole, in, in that respect, yeah, I think it is one way because you can't, you know, info Andy Burnham as a as a, as a bogeyman, can you? So just the idea of something like yeah, eat your greens or Andy Burnham will nationalise your house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's true. And so I think actually that is the big difference. It's not about the internal dynamics of May's leadership, but the dynamics of rebellion uh, are quite different. Yeah. Well, like, well, exactly. You know, you know, is it Andy Burnham, that Cooper in the national interest? You know, is it is a a ticket Tory MPs can buy, whereas Corbyn. Is doing the thing we want, but you know we're so we are so genuinely terrified of him and everything he stands for, because he is you know move that shifted the window or whatever. Yeah. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Stephen Bush, and my colleague Helen Lewis. Make sure to check out the rest of the podcasts in our family. The back half covers arts. Seriously covers pop culture and political football will every Monday be covering the World Cup. <laughs>